Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. This week, we're again addressing intelligence aspects of the spiraling Ukraine crisis. Gregory Sims, a 30-year veteran of the CIA's operations directorate, says that U.S. security officials should expect the unexpected from Vladimir Putin and not just in Ukraine or elsewhere in Europe. He advises them not to be caught napping if Putin activates underground agents in the U.S. to electronically sabotage power stations or even worse. And I don't think it's necessarily likely, but I think the uh, the Russians have been putting in place capabilities to create the kind of disruptions on the scale of Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And given how, to how uh, uh, Putin has thrown down the gauntlet on Ukraine and things do not seem to be going his way, uh, he's painting himself into a corner. And uh, when that happens, people get desperate. That's former CIA officer Gregory Sims. I'll be talking more with him later in the show. Gene? Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky knows there is a target on his back. According to the information we have, the enemy has marked me as target number one, my family as target number two. They want to damage Ukraine politically by destroying the head of state. Sean McFate agrees there are people on the ground in Ukraine with a kill list and Zelensky's name is at the top. McFate became a private military contractor in Africa and Eastern Europe after serving as an army paratrooper. He now is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and is author of the book, The New Rules of War, How America Can Win Against Russia, China, and Other Threats. McFate has not only lived the mercenary life, he has been in contact with members of Russia's infamous Wagner Group, or he was until a few weeks ago when they ghosted him. He assumes that's because they were dispatched to Ukraine to fight, to kill. So the Wagner Group, these are elite Russian mercenaries. They only work for, you know, Moscow. Really, what they do is they do the Kremlin's dirty work. They do their wet work. And they started in 2014 uh, by a guy called Dmitry Utkin. He was a colonel in Russian special forces or Spetsnaz. And Russian special forces are like very hardcore, right? Um, and he, and he initial, their initial contract was to go into Ukraine the first time around in 2014 and cause mayhem. And then they went into places like Syria and then into Libya and all through Africa. And you know, Russia for the first time since the 1980s is doing expeditionary warfare into two continents, Africa and the Middle East. And their, their weapon of choice are mercenaries. They're the Wagner Group and they're extraordinarily lethal and extraordinarily unscrupulous. Why are they the weapon of choice, as you put it? Yeah. They're, the reason why Russia likes the Wagner Group so much is that Rus the Russian way of war today, it's sneaky, sneaky warfare. And the reason it's sneaky 
is that they know that we live in an information age where you know, anybody with an iPhone can become a, a journalist, a videographer, a publisher, and a PR agent. And in an information age, the way that you win wars is you wage them in secret. You wage them either by using you know, disinformation to confuse people, like the, the troll factory, or, and, and or you use covert teams on the ground that give you plausible deniability. So if they get caught, you could say, you know, Russia could just say, hey, we really didn't know who those people were. Yes, they speak Russian, but they're not us. But if you, but if you catch like a Russian special forces soldier or a Russian SVR intelligence operative, it's really hard to deny that. So mercenaries give you supreme plausible deniability in an era where plausible deniability is what, weighs, what wins wars and not firepower. So they're obviously not in uniform. Are they blending into the local population in Ukraine? Um, well, many of them speak Russian and Ukrainian, obviously. And remember, there are Spetsnaz bases that used to be stationed in Ukraine. Dmitry Ukin is an example. He was a commander of a Spetsnaz unit that was based in Ukraine. So they can very easily sort of blend in. Um, and there's a, you know, and what they would be doing is they'd be working in small teams, for example, in the streets of Kiev, these hunter killer teams, trying to chase down leads, trying to, you know, A, do sabotage and, you know, like fifth column activities, but they have a kill list. And if, and, you know, um, you know, if they see somebody or they could try to take out leadership this way from generals to others, but of course the president himself, Zelensky would be, job number one. But yeah, they would be trying to blend in. So you've characterized them as being exceptionally lethal. Yeah. Why? Well, let me give you an example of an event that happened in 2018 in eastern Syria, where about three to 400 Wagner Group mercenaries went up against some of our, America's best troops, Delta Force, Green Berets, and Marines with their um, you know, their, their local allies. And our troops were, were in a defensive position, which is stronger in a Conoco gas facility, like a natural gas facility. There was a two hour standoff. They, you know, they got hit, but they didn't run and they gave hits back. And finally, the Americans called in our air forces, AC-130 gunships, which are like these flying artillery, um, you know, AC-130s, uh, Apache helicopters, drones, and other aircraft. And as one Wagner guy told me who survived this, American Air Force is basically annihilated them systematically because the Wagner group didn't have any sort of air defense missiles or anything like that. Um, but it, you know, it, the, the, the takeaway is this. I mean, we the Americans killed more Russians that night than any single night during the Cold War. And people in the Pentagon were like, woohoo, that's a victory. But it really isn't. I mean, if the Wagner Group can stand up to our most elite soldiers and hold their ground for a few hours, what happens when they go up against like the New York State National Guard or a regular unit or a Ukrainian militia? It'll be like Black Hawk Down times 10. And that's that's how you know these are these are not these mercenaries are not cheap Hollywood villains. They are 
lethal as the dark as the night is dark. Are you surprised that they haven't had more success that we're aware of, at least within Ukraine? You know, the days are still quite early. We're not even in two weeks of the war yet. Um, so it's hard to measure what has been successful or not. Do these um, mercenaries pay any attention to international law when they're operating? Oh, of course not. I mean, it's one of their chief selling points, right? Uh, is I mean, the Russian military doesn't generally care about the laws of war. If you look at what they did in Chechnya or they did in Syria, they and they flatten the place. And in Syria, they used the, the Wagner Group to do some of that stuff. Um, so the Russian military is not a big fan of the laws of war. And the Wagner Group, that is one of their, that's one of their, quote, strengths, unquote, is that they, they, they operate and they can do real stuff that would embarrass the Kremlin. And then the Kremlin could say they're just a bunch of patriotic zealots and leave them be. What motivates them? Is it money? So when I've talked to, I've, I, again, when I've talked to, to members of the Wagner Group, and I don't speak Russian through a trusted interpreter, it's kind of the same as, well, there's, there's three to four reasons he, uh, he told me, one, one guy in particular asked this question. One is that, um, you know, many of them are ex-Special Forces Russia, and they view this as another way to serve, a way without bureaucratic red tape. And they're firmly within the orbit of Putin and the Russia, you know, making a greater Russia empire. Then there are others who are really just, say, professional warriors. They, they were Russian soldiers, and they are, you know, they, they don't really care so much about the politics. They just want to be really good warriors in the way that somebody like a, a, a carpenter takes pride in making a really good cabinet. Um, which may sound weird to people, but that's there's a lot of people out there like that in the warrior world. Um, another are people who want to get money, but they don't get paid that much. They get paid about a hundred. Well, they get paid about one hundred eighty thousand rubles a month, which is about twenty four hundred dollars a month before the war. Now the rubles crash, so like six months ago, and that was pretty good money for for them compared to a soldier, but it wasn't astronomical. And then the fourth category is that there's, there are crazy people who just want to leave humanity and do dark things, right? They're just, they want to kill people, stuff like that. So you mentioned the crash of the ruble. Yeah. Is that potentially going to have an impact on some of these individuals? Will they decide to give this up? It's a good question. I think as, um, it's hard to say because remember, they're, they're, all with, they're all locked in the Russian economy. It's not like they're trading rubles on a foreign exchange and not invested in rubles. Uh, and certainly for the ones who are very pro-Russian, it won't make a difference at all. What about if Putin is deposed? If? If Putin is deposed. So the way the Wagner, that's a good question. So the, the Wagner group is actually owned by an oligarch. His name is uh, Prigozhin. And he's in Putin's inner circle. And he also owns the Troll Factory, which is the internet research agency. He owns both the Troll Factory and the Wagner Group, and they work together. So the Troll Factory blows out you know, BS, uh, disinformation and, about a conflict, and then the Wagner Group moves through it, like slithers through the fog of war for victory. Now, if, if Putin got deposed and Prigozhin was not in on the palace coup, then I would imagine Prigozhin would be deposed too. 
but that labor pool of mercenaries still exists. So they're not like an army unit where they would also be dis, you know, uh, what, what's the word? Like um, de- they wouldn't be demobilized like a military unit. They would simply work for a new master, uh, whether it be a Russian one. Now I've talked to Wagner group guys and, and some of them are very dissatisfied with the Wagner group because they know that they're cannon fodder as well. And they've been used as cannon fodder by Putin, by the Kremlin, and they would like to work for, say, a wealthy UAE monarchy that pays more and does less. Um, So there is that. But the problem is, is that Russia, and this is very Russian, even though Russia hired these mercenaries, they have strict anti-mercenary laws on the books. And so if one of these mercenaries talks to journalists or starts sniffing around for work outside of Russia, they can be picked up and arrested as mercenaries and thrown into the gulag. So that's the way that Russia keeps control of these mercenaries is is ironically using these anti-mercenary laws against the mercenaries that they've hired. So you have been, I guess you call it a soldier for hire in the past. Yeah. What motivated you? Well, the term of art we use is private military contractor. Uh, I was in the group of like some of these Wagner guys. I was a professional warrior who I was in the art. Well, first of all, I came from the U.S. Army. I was a paratrooper in the U.S. Army's 82nd Airborne Division. And in the 1990s, and in the 1990s, the U.S. military didn't know what it was doing after the Cold War. There was no strategic direction. And I felt the future of war was nothing but peacekeeping the Balkans. And I didn't, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to risk my life for the UN, an incompetent UN mission as I saw at the time. So I, I left the military and I, I found militaries that I found I felt more in tune with as a, as a warrior. Plus I was also very intellectually curious. Um, and my curiosity got even more, I don't know what to say, um, it get more stoked because I found myself doing missions initially for the U.S. government that traditionally would have been assigned to the CIA or special operations forces, and they were outsourcing them, right? And as the, the U.S., it's hard for the U.S. To, to wag their finger and say, don't do this, when the United States itself hired private military contractors throughout our, you know, our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In fact, you know, we're seeing a boom of mercenaries around the world, many of whom got their start on a U.S. contract in those wars. So in many ways, the U.S. is complicit in resurrecting this ancient and recently defunct industry. The, the, the industry sort of went underground from the 1850s until the 1990s. And then our wars and our 9-11 wars really catapulted it into a worldwide industry yet again. So yeah, that there's a, there are similarities, and I did do that work, and then I got out and I did work for uh, private sector, you know, private interest as well. Um, but I also saw the world and international security in in ways that people in Washington D.C. just cannot fathom, because I think most unlike unlike the halls of Moscow and Beijing and Tehran, I think Washington strategic thinking is still somewhere in the 1980s. It's not caught up with, with modern warfare. Uh, and this type of the privatization of modern warfare is a symptom of modern warfare. 
What role do you think mercenaries are going to play in warfare going forward? I think mercenaries are, going to, are just going to grow because uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that in modern warfare, they give you plausible deniability. They can be disavowed. So remember a year ago when the president of Haiti was assassinated by Colombian mercenaries? We still don't know who hired them. The mercenaries don't know who hired them. And that is, that is what mercenaries can do because they, they work through cutouts and they can be disavowed at any moment. And that's what makes them very attractive to the super rich because you get to a point where the super rich can swipe a check and wage war for whatever reason they want, no matter how petty. And the mercenaries are part of that. And this is how wars were fought in the Middle Ages, for example. And so we're going to get to a point where, I mean, I know that you know, Ukraine is looking to hire mercenaries. Uh, we also have seen multinational corporations hire them, like especially extractive industry, like oil and gas, because they're tired from their point of view of being shook down by corrupt local governments like Nigeria or something like that. Um, and then we see you know, the super rich use them. So you might remember a couple of years ago in 2019, the president and CEO of Nissan Motor Company was under house arrest in Tokyo for corruption. His name was, was Carlos Goshen. And he secretly hired former Green Beret mercenary to covertly exfiltrate him like a CIA op back to Lebanon, which has no extradition treaty with Japan. And that's where he sits today. And every bazillionaire around the world thought, oh, I have a get out of jail free card now. I can now use mercenaries. Um, you can also see a, a world where like mega churches who have lots of money, like there's one in Houston, like, like $92 million annual budget uh, that could hire, like if there's an ISIS 2.0, could hire mercenaries to do a humanitarian intervention. So now that mercenaries are now a thing again, because remember mercenaries are the second oldest profession, that means that the super rich can become superpowers by the mid 21st century. This sounds like chaos. It is. And this is what I talk about in my book, The New Rules of War. I talk about something called durable disorder. Because in, for example, in the European Middle Ages, I mean, for most of human history, it doesn't look like the world that we grew up with in sixth grade. We are taught that states are the global security governance apparatus of the world, that only they can wage war, that only they can make international law. And that's always been this way. But that's ahistorical. States are only a couple hundred years old. And throughout human history, force was privatized. It was not monopolized by states. And whether you were, you know, uh, an empire who'd hired mercenaries like the Roman Empire, or you were a very rich aristocratic family like kings and queens, or even if you were the papacy, the popes used to hire mercenary armies all the time. It was just done. The Bible talks about mercenaries all the time, like seven or eight times in the Old Testament, and never with any stigma or scorn. And so we're going back to a world where any where conflict is now commodified. It's like an eBay or souk for warfare. And yes, because you tie lethality with profitability, we know from history that mercenaries can start and elongate wars for profit. And that makes it really hard to end warfare. Is there any way to pull the leash and uh, 
stop this trend or slow it down? I don't think so. I think that the opportunity to do that was when the mercenary market was still very nascent in the 1990s. I think in the last 30 years, the proverbial horse has fled the barn. Some think that, you know, um, international law is a solution, but I don't think so. And here's why. First of all, there is no good international law on the books to arrest mercenaries. There just isn't. It's very vague. It's very, it's hard to prove. And then where are you going to take somebody to court? Uh, And even if you have like domestic laws, they can easily be ignored. I mean, Russia has anti-mercenary laws, yet they hire mercenaries. Um, and though, and think about this way, who's going to go into Ukraine and arrest all those mercenaries? The United Nations, the U.S. Marine Corps, NATO? No. Nobody's going to send anybody to arrest all those mercenaries. And lastly, your mercenaries, well, these mercenaries can shoot our law enforcement dead. I mean, these are armed and dangerous mercenaries, and they're working in the most chaotic places in the world. They're not working in North America, they're not like in Boston, they're working in Libya and the Congo, Somalia, Yemen, Ukraine. Um, so I don't think anything is going to stop this trend, which is why it's, it's as ancient as warfare itself. This idea that mercenaries no longer exist, that is bizarre and it's, it's an anomalous. Mercenaries just disappeared in the 1850s and now we're back to normal. It just doesn't look like normal for anybody who's been around the last 60 to 100 years. So let's go back to Ukraine. How do you anticipate um, the Wagner Group's activities are going to play out in Ukraine over the next several weeks? I think what's going to happen is that Russia is going to go into a counterinsurgent mode of just killing people. Um, and they're going to seal off the, uh, the media as best that they can. Um, and I think that um, you know, the Wagner Group will be a part of still hunting and killing and to do, you know, they're going to be like, um, yeah, they're, they're going to be like covert hunter killers for leadership. Do you think Zelensky would have been smart to take the Americans up on the offer to get him out of the country? I don't think so. I think he's a very brave man. He is the leader that they need. And I think for him to leave would be the collapse of the resistance, or at least the the culminating point of defeat for them, meaning that that the resistance could live, but I think it would be dwindling or, uh, you know, uh, no returns after that. So I think he's a, I think it's good that we gave him an off ramp. Uh, I think it's good he said no. Um, of course, I'm not him. And what does he want to be a martyr? And you know, here think about this: is that what happens if he gets captured by the Wagner Group and he ends up in a show trial in Moscow? that makes like, you know, Gary Powers trial, the U2 incident during the Cold War look like a a Cub Scout jamboree. Like, you know, Putin is a master at manipulation and strategic disinformation. And I can imagine a show trial followed by his either his execution or more likely an exile to the gulag. That way he doesn't have to have his blood in his hands. Doesn't make him a martyr. But I think that if Zelensky gets captured, that would be a huge propaganda tool for Putin. That was Sean McFaid, a former army paratrooper who worked as a private military contractor. He authored The New Rules of War, How America Can Win Against Russia, China and Other Threats. He is also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Well, the little green men aren't doing as well as expected in Ukraine. 
just like the rest of the Russian military, if we're to believe the headlines today and all the major media, the Russian military machine is kind of stalled again this week. So we don't know how this is going to turn out. We're still, I think the common wisdom is still that the Russian military can crush the resistance and this, or at least make the cities unlivable. But there's, we're, we're still far from the end. Of course, we don't know everything that's going on in the ground. One of the things that fate says the Wagner Group is likely doing is helping find targets and direct artillery barrages into the cities so they know where to hit. Another really interesting thing that he mentioned to me is that a lot of the Wagner Group people who he believes are in Ukraine now were pulled out of Mali and other points in Africa. McFate has worked there too as a military contractor. And he says that is where you get what he called the PhD in warfare, because the wars there are so chaotic and they are so lethal and most of the world isn't paying any attention. Chilling. And, and we're also hearing that the Russians are thinking about bringing in Syrian guerrillas who are well experienced. Right. He mentioned that some Syrians fought with the Wagner group in Syria against ISIS. Uh, he, so clearly they have the experience that the Wagner group would want. But he also says it is in a way demonstrates that Russia has alliances. It has people outside of Russia who are willing to go into battle for it. It also might mean that Russia is growing increasingly desperate to find people to throw into the battle. So, again, a lot yet to unfold in Ukraine. And a reminder that you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack, a lot of great content there. And of course, subscribe to our podcast and leave a review if you would. We'd really appreciate it. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. And stay with us. We have another great interview coming up in a moment. Gregory Sims spent 30 years in the CIA, serving multiple tours as a chief or deputy chief of station in several foreign countries. A few days ago, he raised a chilling possibility that Vladimir Putin, cornered by reverses in Ukraine and Western attacks on Russia's financial system, could take the dramatic step of bringing his war to the US. So I called him up and asked him to elaborate. Greg Sims, you wrote something recently that made the proverbial hair on the back of my neck stick up, that in this crisis with the Russians over Ukraine, U.S. officials would be well advised to prepare for a surprise attack on the order of Pearl Harbor or the 911 Al-Qaeda attack on the World Trade Centers and Pentagon. Well, yes, I, I just think it's prudent uh, to to keep that in the back of our mind. I don't think it's necessarily likely, but I think the uh, the Russians have been putting in place capabilities to create the kind of disruptions on the scale of Pearl Harbor and 9-11. And given how, to how uh, Putin has thrown down the gauntlet on Ukraine and things do not seem to be going his way, uh, he's painting himself into a corner. And uh, when that happens, people get desperate. Mm -hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, I think he's going to play to win. And uh, uh, from everything we know about uh, the Russians back to the Soviet era is they plan, they prepare. And uh, uh, putting things in place in advance, like Evanina said in the piece you just wrote, 
Let's let's talk a little bit about that. Let's circle back. I I wrote about this uh, uh, on my Spy Talk website at Substack uh, this week, um, citing your evocation of Cold War era GRU, that's Russian military intelligence, uh, their plans to develop weapons caches in the United States and in Europe uh, in the event a shooting war broke out. Could you revisit that for us? Well, I mean, there's plenty out there uh, and uh, in the public domain, there have been a number of defectors in the Soviet era that came out from both the, the GRU and the KGB, both of which had some responsibility for doing that sort of preparation for wartime contingencies. So you had, uh, you had uh, Vasily Mitrokhin, who, uh, who defected in the early 1990s. He was an archivist for the KGB, and he, he wrote a lot about that, that uh, uh, there had been caches set down for use by illegals or diversionary teams in time of, of conflict. And then there was a, a GRU uh, defector that was uh, uh, Stanislav Lunev, uh, also from the 1990s, and that was, that, that was the department of the GRU he was working in, was uh, uh, preparing the groundwork for for um, diversionary activities behind enemy lines, including in the United States, and in the event the big one kicked off. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the Soviet era. Uh, things I think would be a little bit different now. We can talk about that too. I, I don't think it's necessarily, you know, casing machine guns and bombs. But let's hold on before we leave that. There were two, perhaps three uh, Soviet agents or defectors who corroborated each other's stories, but no weapons caches were found here as far as we know. There was one weapons cache that was discovered in Switzerland and it was rigged with an explosive device to destroy the evidence should an unauthorized person try to access it. So what do you, what do you, what's your, what's your final conclusion about how true those uh, statements by the former Soviet agents were? You know, I, I think they did that caching, but uh, again, I, I think things might be di- different now. What's what's happened uh, since the collapse of the USSR is that, whereas you know, in in, in, Soviet, in the Soviet era, when the, the conflict they're preparing for was a a 20th century kind of war, and the caches they would have would be you know weapons, small arms, explosives to blow up bridges, to do that sort of OSS type behind the enemy lines. Uh, activity. I think what's happened since then is the Russian military doctrine has evolved, uh, and they've really looked at information conflict as what they would pri- they're primarily uh, their 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 uh, their main competitive advantage or, or mm-hmm. we are, are in, in in the cyber realm. And, and before we finally leave that subject, is it possible that those Soviet defectors were sent here to put out that kind of disinformation? or that they weren't entirely well-informed? What, what, what do you think? You mean the, the Soviet-era defectors? Yes, that's right. Well, I, I would be very highly uh, uh, doubtful that they were directed to, to I mean, it's, you don't defect intelligence officers for, for a reason like that. It's, you, you lose too much. I don't think so. I mean, nothing's impossible, but I would be very, very dubious about that prospect. But okay. my point is this, it's not just weapons cases. I think today, what you need to be concerned about, they don't, they don't need... To, to, to bury weapons. They don't need to bury explosives. What they, what they want to take out are uh, single points of failure in our information infrastructure. Not necessarily by cyber, it could be by breaking things. You've, you pointed out in your recent article 
the uh, the I think it was 2017 the event in California uh, where that uh, the Metcalf Power Station yeah right and there was a, a drone incident in Pennsylvania a couple of years ago where a drone trailing copper wires was was uh, heading toward a, an electrical substation and crashed before it reached it, but the drone was stripped of all markings. Uh, and again, we, I'm not saying that's the GRU or the, S, or, or the SVR, but it shows that somebody, you know, working inside the United States or in the West could, without, you know, resorting to, you know, uh, bombs or, or explosives, could take out or do considerable damage to our information infrastructure. So that's, I think that's what uh, Bill Avenino was talking about, is they've studied our, 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 our information network, and they have studied where our weaknesses are. And I think they probably probably have put into place ways to to put th those into jeopardy if, if things uh, mm -hmm. uh, if uh, if we start to tangle with them directly. Now, Bill Avenida, we should remind uh, the audience is the former head of national counterintelligence um, during the Obama administration, and he also headed the counter espionage group at CIA. So this is a guy who knows what he's talking about. Yeah. Now, he elaborated with me um, for my article uh, on the Spy Talk website that agents, he, he detected that uh, enemy agents uh, may have been involved in close in action against Metcalf. Um, uh, in other words, Agents sidled up to this power plant and still have the ability to, to sidle up to a power plant with some kind of electronic device that can uh, throw offline the power stations operations or really or even shut them down. Um, is that your understanding, too, that uh, that kind of thing could be going on? Well, yeah, I mean, he would know better than I. But, yes, I think if you, if you extrapolate the. The Soviet era behavior to, to modern times. I think what they we focus on today more than then uh, is our uh, our weakness in terms of the fact that we wear our nervous system on the outside of our body in the West. So I, I think they understand that they see that and they will want to exploit that. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I agree with them entirely. Now, uh, on the order of uh, your question about whether we should be preparing for uh, a Pearl Harbor or 911 level kind of attack. You brought up in an article you recently wrote the Russian submarine capability for intercepting our undersea cables. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, yeah, I mean, there, again, there's a lot out there in the public domain. Uh, the Russians have developed uh, highly capable and very, they've invested a lot of money and some advanced undersea uh, technology. These are nuclear powered titanium submarines that are launched from a mothership. These are converted uh, ballistic missile submarines that had their missiles taken out and they've been stretched. And they, they can dive from six to 8,000 feet deep and, and do things at that depth, depths that we can't reach with our submarines. Mm. And, and, and I think what people have pointed out, uh, and I, to me, it seems self-evident is that, uh, you know, things of interest that depth, and the one that jumps out is the undersea cable uh, infrastructure, mm -hmm. which will be quite devastating to us, you know, if, if they could compromise. I mean, there's a lot of redundancy there, so they would have to be fairly, uh, their, 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 their uh, attacks would have to be quite extensive, but uh, potentially, you know, that could disrupt the economy, our financial system. You know, we've, we've um, 
we've uh, uh, cut them out of SWIFT, which is having a devastating effect on their economy. And they might see it as fair game if they were to attack our the communications that support the West's uh, financial uh, uh, capabilities or transactions. And that wouldn't be self-defeating to cut these transatlantic cables? It kind of, if the gauntlet's thrown down, if, we, if we're causing their economy to implode, what more do they have to lose? Um, mm -hmm. So it's, if it gets to that level, I, I, you know, I think that's, this is what I would call a non-nuclear strategic capability. So there's been a lot of talk now, a lot of anxiety and angst about this uh, nuclear saber rattling we've been hearing from the foreign minister and others. But I think they've got a lot of other cards to play. And that was the point of the article that I wrote a few weeks back is that, you know, people tend to gravitate toward the, the nuclear. It, it's, you know, it's uh, obviously is the one that gets your attention, but they have a number of other cards to play that could have major disruptive, disruptive effects in the United States and elsewhere in the West without launch, short of launching a nuclear war. And I think it's, 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 it's more likely that they would turn to those first before, you know, uh, thinking about a nuclear exchange. Now, Greg Sims, you, I don't think you mentioned in the article you wrote over at the Cypher Brief, uh, satellite uh, options for the Russians as well. This is a, you know, war, a satellite on satellite, space war has been in the public domain for decades now. Um, I suppose that's another option should this, uh, this confrontation turn hot. I think if you saw uh, uh, attacks against the undersea cable infrastructure, you probably see at the same time uh, attacks against satellite communications that would make sense that they would do them both. And they have a longstanding ASAT capability. So that, you know, they have the ability to do that. You had some 30 years experience in the CIA's clandestine operations. Um, you study the Russians very closely. You've been a station chief or deputy station chief multiple times. What's your read altogether on the Russians? What's your gut feeling? Is, are we seeing anomalous behavior here with Putin? Has he lost his marbles? Or is this in line with Russian negotiating and military history? I see this as a very unusual activity. I mean, in the Soviet era, there was a lot of conflict, a lot of uh, indirect warfare, so to speak, between the US and, and the Soviet Union and the West, but it wasn't this level of recklessness. And to hear the foreign minister talking about nuclear war is, uh, is something we never really saw. I mean, perhaps a bit in the Khrushchev era, but uh, they were a lot more responsible than this. And it is, it is strike me as very unusual what we're seeing now. Putin, his record has been, he's been a risk taker, but it's always been calculated risk, the kind of risk that he could back away from if things got, uh, didn't go the way he planned. But he's all in on this. I mean, if, if this doesn't succeed for him, his, his, the future of his uh, regime is in jeopardy. So he's got to, he can't afford to lose now that he's started it. Mm -hmm. And up until now, he hasn't taken that kind of risk, you know, uh, you know, thrown the gauntlet down the way he's done now. So we're in some very precarious times. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, I, and I do think this is definitely not something I would have expected to see in the Soviet era. And again, uh, you know, once Stalin died, remember, it was ruled by a Politburo. It was, uh, it was more of an oligarchy. There was a general secretary, but uh, there, was a, there were a lot of other 
the, the real politics was going on uh, in, in the in the Soviet uh, regime. Uh, with Putin, it's more of a more of a, a single person. This is this is Putin's war. This is his mm-hmm. decision. It has it has uh, echoes in the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, during which a high-ranking Russian national security official, Oleg Penkovsky, came over to the West. Do you suspect that the CIA and other Western intelligence agencies are going to harvest or have already harvested dismayed Russian officials? I mean, just from my my instincts tell me, and I think history has, has shown that whenever you have events like this, um, uh, I, I think there are people inside of that uh, of the intelligence services and the military and the government who aren't going to be happy with this. Russians are intelligent people. Uh, they, you know, many of them can see through the propaganda to see what's going on. And for some of them, it's going to be it's going to be um, a tipping point. So I, I, I just think if if you look at it, um, you know, almost statistically, yes, I think this will result. And 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 uh, people within the regime reaching out, whether it's to the West or to the, to the U.S. or to other allied uh, uh, governments, to to um, want to do what they can to stop it. And also, I think you may see more leaking uh, whistleblower types. You know, rather than going to an intelligence service, you're going to see Russians who are upset about it, perhaps just leaking information to the media or to organizations like Bellingcat. That, that's a dynamic that didn't really exist uh, until recently. Billingcat is the public uh, open intelligence source, uh, which has penetrated uh, uh, Russian military and intelligence operations with spectacular success in recent years. Um, given your long senior level experience in CIA operations, what would you be arguing for if you were back on the seventh floor of CIA headquarters in Langley today? Well, unfortunately, it's kind of too late uh, to argue for a lot of it because uh, the conflict has started. You know, what you wanted to have done is to gotten into a position to be prepared uh, uh, for it when it happens. But now once the conflict starts, it's, it's more uh, it gets more complicated to to run operations. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been reassured from what I've seen. Uh, I, I think intelligent, intelligence is meant to be used. And I think this, this administration has been very creative in trying to get ahead of the propaganda that uh, uh, Russia uh, was going to be presenting in advance of their moves to preempt them. It's uh, preempt ends, I suppose, is, is the a phrase I might use. So it's been, uh, I, I think they're doing a great, a great job from what I see. Uh, I'm not sure if I could counsel anything different. But beyond Ukraine, um, Putin seems to be acting so erratically. It doesn't seem like his responses are entirely rational. Uh, he seems to be acting erratically and irrationally. Um, perhaps he just miscalculated. Um, But if he's brandishing nuclear weapons and he's threatened to go beyond Ukraine into neighboring nations that are supporting the Ukrainians, um, I suppose (laughs) 
it would be natural that it goes through some people's minds out at Langley and, and in the White House that maybe we should be thinking about regime change. Now, uh, Russian experts that I know say, we well, just forget about it. There, there's, there's nobody close to Putin who's going to turn on him. They, they're just too tied to him. They are weighted down with Putin's gold and uh, are just not going to, they just don't have a chance to move on him. Do you have any thoughts about that? I think it depends on how far this goes. Uh, there, uh, you know, there, there have been a number of uh, defector and emigre reports from people who were at high levels during the, the Cuban Missile Crisis who said that they were horrified that Khrushchev took things as far as he did. Um, if if it, things trend in a direction where uh, it looks like Putin will be directing his intelligence services and military to do such things as cutting undersea cables or launching uh, uh, diversionary physical attacks inside the West or the United States, or if the use of nuclear weapons is legitimately on the table. Uh, Russians are intelligent people. Uh, Russian military officers are highly capable. Uh, and I, you know, if, 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 this, if, if they do sense that Putin has, is, is going off the deep end and, and moving in that direction, I think that uh, a Khrushchev type situation where he is uh, forced into retirement depots or somehow moved out of office is not uh, inconceivable. And, and again, when you talk about regime change, it's this is something, you know, we're not, we are not and will never be in a position to change the Russian regime. Russians will have to do that themselves. Yeah. And, and it, it bears reminding that Khrushchev was forced into early retirement after the Kennedys stood up to him over the Cuban missiles and right. had them removed. Um, so uh, we may have we may be lurching toward a point where we're going to be in direct confrontation with the Russians, a scary uh, scenario indeed. Anyway, Greg Sims, thanks so much for coming on the show. We're going to have to leave it there. I have a feeling we're going to have you back again to share your wisdom on these issues. Thanks for your interest. That was Gregory Sims, 30 year veteran of the CIA. Gene. That was chilling to hear him talk about how these specially equipped Russian submarines can dive deep and disrupt internet cables. But another thing I don't think he talked about was the fear of cyber attacks from Russia, that they probably have infiltrated all of our critical infrastructure and planted things within there that they could activate that also would, would take down things that we rely on every day, not just to do business, but just to conduct 21st century lives. Yeah. Um, as you know, I did a piece expanding on this over Substack and the Spy Talk column. And uh, other officials uh, did comment on that, that, that the Russians have placed uh, malware in our infrastructure for a decade now. Uh, we know that. That's been reported widely. But um, as a 60 Minutes show that I referenced, uh, demonstrated uh, U.S. utilities are still slow to lift their drawbridges, as we've said, against cyber attacks. So um, let's, let's just hope we don't have another wake-up call after another 911-style attack. And that's what Greg Sims is warning about. You know, we were shocked that al-Qaeda would fly hijacked passenger liners into 
the World Trade Center towers and Pentagon, and they intended to slide one right down the Washington Mall into the U.S. Capitol. And then, of course, going way back, there was the Pearl Harbor attack in 1941, totally unexpected. So we've just got to expect the unexpected. We got to be on our guard. Things are are worsening by the day. The tension is really uh, ratcheting up between the U.S. and Russia. We're, we're at a place that we haven't been uh, since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. So uh, it's a very fraught time here in America. And on that note, thanks a lot for joining us this week for Spy Talk. Remember, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Twitter and tune in next week for another edition. I'm Jean Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. See you here next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.